0: Turn uh, with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20 today. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. Let's go ahead and uh, begin uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, we acknowledge our desperate need for Christ. We acknowledge the fact that we are sinners, and yet uh, For those who have been born again, as we sang a moment ago, we are also righteous in Christ. It's a perplexing thing for us to imagine that the God of the universe would come to this world uh, as a baby in a manger and give himself for his creation It is a depth of love and mercy that we cannot fathom. Forgive us for the times where we have thought ourselves worthy to be able to offer you something. This work is a work wholly of Christ. The gospel condemns us and at the same time saves us. And so we rejoice for your kindness to us and your mercy. We pray that you'd help us as we're looking at a passage in 1 Corinthians today that really, I think, deals a death blow at our current culture. Help us to be gracious as we seek to reach those who uh, perhaps are sinning in this way. I pray that for those of us who find ourselves drawn into these kinds of sins, that you would help us to repent and turn. I pray that anyone here without Christ would come to know Christ today. We pray in his name. Amen. Nobody wants to be a slave. Everybody wants to be free. But what if... What if the very thing that we think is freedom is in fact slavery? If that were the case, we would never know that we were slaves because we would be craving this slavery all the time thinking that it was freedom. We would never know that we were imprisoned. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20 today. We have been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, preaching verse by verse through this particular book. And today we find ourselves in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You may recall from earlier in our study in this book that we said that there was a particular spirit in the church at Corinth. Uh, We called this the libertine spirit. And the libertine spirit in the church of Corinth strikes again in our passage in front of us. If you recall, we discussed the Libertines uh, when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Libertines, or as we said at that time, the freedmen, those who are free and not enslaved, in quotes, those people were part of the group of people that were responsible for the stoning of Stephen. If you remember when we looked at that, uh, we saw that that particular group was mentioned, the freedmen were in that particular group. At a basic level, this word libertine refers to those who are liberated. The word, according to the dictionary today, means someone who is liberated in their thinking, or we might call this person a free thinker. And we spent a little bit more time on this topic last time than we are going to today. But remember that we said that today, this libertine person or this free thinker we might call this person today a deconstructionist, someone who uh, is seeking freedom from the restraints of religion, so to speak. Libertines or freethinkers or deconstructionists are typically reacting to what they perceive to be a lifeless and blind following of the rules. Everywhere they look, they see legalism, 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 and so we've got to free ourselves from this. <clears throat> We must recall, though, that as we've observed many times before, that libertine thinking is not the cure to legalism. In fact, it is another version of legalism. This free thinking, or what we call antinomianism, this I'm going to uh, forget about the law, I'm going to just live life how I want to live without these restraints, I'm going to be free, this is not a cure to legalism, it is just legalism with different wrapping paper. The antinomianism, we said, is legalism in disguise. And then we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul was criticizing these, quote-unquote, freethinkers or these libertines uh, because of their tolerance. Tolerance, we said, is a virtue of the libertines, They really valued tolerance and would tolerate all sorts of things. This was where they were tolerating the sexual sinner at the church of Corinth. And Paul says, you should not be tolerating that person. Instead, you should mourn because of what this person is doing. And yet we said that libertines value tolerance. The libertines or the antinomians or those who are tired of all the rules have a tendency to value this tolerance. And of course, again, in 1 Corinthians 5, It looked like them tolerating the sexual sin. And we actually see a similar form of this in our passage today. The Corinthian mindset, as we'll see in this passage, was simply this. All things are lawful for me. What does that mean? I can do whatever I want to. I can do anything I want to. This is what these Corinthian Christians were thinking. Christ has set me free. And so now... Anything goes. I can indulge in whatever sin I want to because Christ has paid for that. And now it's all, it's it's anything. How will Paul deal with this particular attitude? Well, it should come as no surprise to us that the way that Paul will deal with this particular attitude in the church of Corinth is the same way that he deals with any attitude that is contrary to Scripture, and that is simply this sound theology. Sound theology has a way of fixing a lot of broken things, and that's exactly what Paul does in our passage uh, today. Paul will talk about the significance of our union with Christ. This is good theology, our union with Christ. And then he will also talk about the importance of the fact that Christ has purchased us and what that means for our behavior. Let's go ahead and read the passage in front of us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <clears throat> beginning... Uh, in verse 12, we read this All things are lawful for me. Ah, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. Ah, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. We begin here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's see here. Let's go through all this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 begins with this statement. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, right away, as we begin this particular passage, we are faced with a challenge. And the challenge really comes from who is the speaker here, and when is the speaker changing back and forth. Um, You can see in the ESV, which is up in front of us here on the screen, you can see that the ESV translators have put quotation marks around certain phrases in this verse. Uh, And this has really been kind of uh, a little bit of a debate back and forth, is... When is Paul talking, and when are the Corinthians talking, and who is responding to who, and how is all of this happening? Um, There are, by the way, no quotation marks or any kind of marker to signify this in the Greek, and really the majority of commentators, and I think probably the majority of people throughout church history, have really kind of landed right where the ESV has here on this verse with the location of the quotation marks. So let me uh, help you understand what's going on here. Paul is quoting the Corinthians. This could be what the Corinthian church was saying. This could be a quotation from the greater culture in Corinth amongst pagans. Or this could be just simply a quotation based on Paul's uh, just bringing together, this is what you're saying, guys, practically speaking. But regardless of where that specifically comes from, this is kind of what Paul is presenting as the mindset of the Corinthian Christians. They were saying this, all things are lawful for me. Then that's the end of the quotation, and now Paul's response to that. Paul responds and says, okay, but not everything is helpful. And then Paul quotes the Corinthians again, saying the same thing a second time, all things are lawful for me. And then Paul comes in and he gives his commentary on that. But I will not be dominated by anything. That's kind of the structure of the way this is working. Now, the the NIV, I'm going to put the NIV up here. The NIV um, tried to uh, capture this by inserting something into the text. So if you're reading the NIV, this is not in the text. It is their way of trying to tell you what's going on. Specifically, what's not in the text are the two words you say, okay? So, they're saying, I have the right to anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. And so, you can kind of see the gist of what's trying to be relayed here. So, what Paul is doing is he is responding to this, again, libertine mindset, or what we might call this antinomian mindset, or this free thinker mindset, or this, I can do whatever I want because I'm in Christ it all is fair game for me. Why did the Corinthians adopt this way of thinking? Well, perhaps it was a distortion of their newfound freedom in Christ. If you think about this for a moment, the difference, the primary difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world, you could, the difference here is that Christianity is the only one in this box... And every single other religion in the world is in this box. And the, the difference, the categorical difference, is that Christianity says salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, and faith alone. Every other religion of the world has some variation of this theme. You work to earn it. It's a variation. Whatever, whatever religion that is you want to talk about you have to do this or you to do this the, the the five pillars here or this thing there or whatever that's the big difference and so perhaps you might be able to understand although it's a false way of thinking through this how when the corinthians came from whatever that was over here to overhear that it's grace alone that they would falsely conclude that rules don't matter anymore. Obedience doesn't matter anymore. Behavior doesn't matter anymore. It's, I can do whatever I want to now. I can indulge in all of the sin I want to because Christ has set me free. These Corinthian Christians, perhaps when they first discovered Christ's free grace, falsely concluded that their behavior didn't matter. Or perhaps it is possible that they absorbed this mindset from their culture around them, There is one uh, Greek, uh, first century Greek philosopher that I'll quote here. Uh, This uh, Greek philosopher said, the wise are permitted to do anything they wish. Whatever you want to do, you can do. Wherever they got this mindset from, they said, or at least they thought this, all things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. That's what Paul is dealing with in this text here. How would you deal with that statement? (laughs) Someone come up to you and, and said, Christ died for my sins, and now I can do whatever I want to do. It's, it's all fair game. I, I, yes, I sinned, but Christ paid for that, didn't he? Come on. Didn't he pay for that? Yes, he paid for that. And so I can continue to indulge and indulge and indulge and indulge and indulge. Paul decided that the way that he was going to deal with this statement was not directly, but he was going to go through the back door. So instead of trying to rebuke the statement outright or to argue with it, uh, he, he never says this. He never says, You're wrong. He just kind of comes through this back door and he says, Okay, fine. Uh, but not everything's helpful. Not, not, not everything is helpful. Not, not everything you could do is equally helpful to you as a Christian. Um, while it may be, or while it may not be, I'll give you an example. While it may not be illegal to run in a race while you're carrying a bag of bricks, okay, it's not really helpful, and it's probably not going to help you win that race. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, fine, but it's not, how, not everything is helpful to you. Not everything you could do as a Christian is going to help you run the Christian life. There are things that you should do do and not do based on how this is going to help me as a Christian. In the same way, the Christian has to ask more than just, can I engage in this activity? The Christian has to ask, will this activity be helpful? Will this help me live out my Christian life? And I think if we were honest today, we do feel a little bit of tug towards this Corinthian libertine spirit, right? Right? We, we, we feel a little bit of tug towards this to be able to just say nothing matters anymore. Our attitude sometimes is similar to theirs. We uh, engage, perhaps you've, you've heard this interaction back and forth. Somebody is engaging in a certain activity and someone else comes up to them and says, "Ah, uh, should you really be doing that as a Christian? And then the response is, well, just show me chapter and verse. It's a dismissive kind of statement. Yes, we do want to know chapter and verse, but there are some things that we do in the Christian life where we say the Bible doesn't necessarily prohibit this behavior, but it's also not going to help me do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And And so I'm going to intentionally limit myself. I'm going to intentionally do this and not do this because... It's not gonna help me. So I think one of the things that we talk about a lot in this area is entertainment or television. The Bible does not restrict us from uh, entertainment and yet we can indulge in that area in such a way that we are, we're not sharing the gospel with people, we're not reading scripture together and all of these kinds of things and then we're saying, well, but, but the Bible never says I can't watch TV, fine, okay, whatever. But is that helpful? This is what Paul is saying here in this particular text. He's saying, is this really helpful to you? Um, Paul introduces at least two additional considerations in the decision-making process as a Christian. You're saying, as a Christian, I'm trying to decide, should I do this or should I not do this? And so the first consideration is, is it helpful? What's the second consideration in this passage? In this verse, verse 12, I will not be what? Dominated or mastered by anything. The Christian streamlines his life in order to be effective in his mission. The Christian understands this is what my mission is. My mission, my marching orders from Christ is to make disciples in Matthew 28 19 and 20. That's what we've been tasked to do as the church. And so the Christian sees that and then streamlines his life or her life in order to effectively accomplish that goal, okay? And so we could give like a billion applications at this point. The Christian perhaps uh, would downsize physical clutter or minimize entertainment, carefully choosing your hobbies not being indulged in something to the point to where you can't engage in ministry uh, and all those kinds of things. The Christian is not to be enslaved to anything. The The Christian is free from, for example, the enslavement of doom scrolling, which is a problem, right? Our fleshly desires, apart from Christ, master us. We think that when we engage in a behavior that we want to engage in, that we are exercising freedom. When we engage in behaviors that we want to engage in, we are enslaved. Here's what John MacArthur says. The fact, however, is that their desires and passions are telling them what to do and they're going along. If you desire something and then you go and do that, what's enslaving you? Your desires. You're just agreeing. I'm just going to go along with what I desire. You're stuck. He continues, they are not the masters of their desires, but are willing slaves. Their flesh is controlling their minds. There is a great irony here, an irony that we have to emphasize, and that is this. The libertine, the free thinker, the antinomian, the one who wants freedom from all these restraints is ironically more of a slave than they ever thought possible. I am going to be so free. I'm going to do whatever you want. Okay, try doing something against your desires. You're enslaved to them. We're enslaved to our own desires. It has been said that the best prison you could ever create is the prison where people don't realize that they are in prison. Why? Because they never try to escape. This is a prison. Your desires are enslaving you. They are telling you what to do, and you are just going along and obeying and listening. That's not freedom. That's enslavement. What if the very people who think that they are the freest are actually the ones who are the most enslaved? Do do you see that? Do you see that in the passage? Look, Look closely at this verse, verse 12. Okay, in verse 12, he says in the second half, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated or mastered by anything. He's using language here of enslavement. If I live my life so that all things are lawful for me, Paul says that is being dominated by those things. You see that connection there in the text? Uh, Mark this down. Your will, the human will, always acts in accordance with its nature. Whatever your nature is, whether you are born again by Christ and you have a new nature, or if you are still in Adam as an unbeliever, your your will is going to act in accordance with one of those two paths. It's going to do one of those two things. We might say it this way, you are a slave to your desires. The sexually immoral person that Paul is talking about in this passage in front of us chooses sexual immorality, not because they are free, but because they are slaves. All right, let me give you a verse on this, okay? Matthew 7 and verse 18. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. If you are a slave to your corrupt desires meaning you have never repented and trusted in Christ. If you are in Adam, if your nature is is still that lost nature apart from Christ, you are a diseased tree, and it is impossible for you to bear good fruit. Your will will act in accordance with its nature. Bad trees cannot produce good fruit, Why do you do what you do? Because you want to do it. Because it's in your nature. The problem is with the desire. It is in the wanting. You can't do something different. That is the level that you are enslaved at. At the level of the wanting, you are a slave to your desires. Paul pushes this a little bit further. And in a a much more specific scenario, he says this in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Okay, we continue on with this challenge here. What is the Corinthian phrase and what is Paul responding to? You can see it up here or in your Bible if you have the ESV. Uh, I'm not sure what the NASB and the others do as far as quotations go. Actually, I think the NASB doesn't have any quotations, if I'm correct on that. Um, So the Corinthians were arguing this way. They were saying, just like the stomach was designed for food, the body is designed for sex. And thus, it is appropriate for the Corinthian to indulge sexually because, well, this is just what the body was made for, and I just get to indulge in this. Where the quotation mark ends, there's a little bit more conversation about this, and I think it's a little bit harder to discern. So the ESV has it, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, end quote, and then Paul comes in and says, and God will destroy both one and the other. Um. I would suggest that the Corinthians were taking that, he's quoting the Corinthians to the end of that sentence so that the whole sentence is the Corinthian quotation. So what the Corinthians were saying, if that's right, is that it doesn't matter what I do with my stomach and food because God's going to destroy them both. You see that? Food's meant for the stomach, stomach for the food. God's going to destroy it all so I can just do whatever I want with it. So I think the quotation mark should be at the end of that sentence. In other words, God cares only for the spiritual, and I can do whatever I want with the physical. Um, So they were saying basically this, the stomach and food were made for one another. And one day, the stomach and food are both going to be destroyed. So it doesn't matter how you use them in this life. This this stomach is not going to last forever. It's going to be destroyed one day. And so just live it up now. Do what you want with it. Eat all the food that you want, and it's all fine. In the same way, the body... Was made for sex, and both are going to be destroyed one day. And so, it doesn't matter how you use it in this life. Just indulge however you want to, do whatever you want. There's no rules anymore because all this is going to be destroyed. Paul rebukes this philosophy by saying that the body was not meant for sexual sexual, sexual morality, but for what? What does the text say? The Lord. Your body wasn't made for that, for sexual morality. The body was made for the Lord. The Corinthians were trying to connect the body with sexual immorality. They go together, they were saying. What they should have done is said, the body goes with the Lord. Union with the Lord. And by the way, the body endures. Paul is saying, or the Corinthians are saying, it doesn't matter because the body is going to be destroyed one day. And Paul says, by the way, verse 14 God raised the Lord, and he's going to raise us up too. We're going to be resurrected. Your body is not going to be destroyed like you think it's going to be destroyed. Paul indicates that the body is more valuable than they imagine because it will go through a resurrection. It will last and be enduring. Heaven is not going to be us floating on clouds, okay? Uh, This is not going to be like in Tom and Jerry where they're on the clouds, right, and they're just playing the harp or whatever, and they're kind of floating around. This is not what heaven's going to be like. Okay, we're not going to be these, like, bodiless spirits that are just hovering all over the place. Resurrection means resurrection. It, it means that the body that you, you're you stuck with, your body. Now, God's going to make it new. He, he's going to renew that body. But it is going to be resurrected. It is going to be um, Uh, that kind of physical existence. And then he says this, verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. The Corinthian logic was failing big time. You cannot, listen, if you are a Christian, who are you one with? Christ. If you join your body in the example here, to a prostitute, what else, what are you, what are you bringing into that? You're, you're saying that the members of Christ can be joined to a prostitute. Verse 16, do you not know that he was joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Uh, one commentator puts this very vividly, and says this, shall I then tear from Christ his limbs and organs and make them the limbs and organs of a prostitute? That stings. Can we really do that? Should we really do that? Because of the Christian's union with Christ, our oneness with Christ, you can see this in Romans chapter 6, To commit sexual immorality is to make the claim, though it's not happening in actuality, but it's to make the claim that Jesus can be joined to a harlot. That's blasphemy. This is why Paul says never, or uh, literally perish the thought. Perish the thought. Don't ever even think that this could happen. Look at what you guys are doing. Look at what you guys are engaging in. The theological point, then, is simply this. We should, as Christians, cleave to God and not to a prostitute. That's the point that he's making here. We are joined to the Lord, as verse 17 indicates. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Fornication involves Christ. It pollutes his name. And because of this, we have a very specific prescription on how we are to deal with sexual fornication. He's going to give this to us in the passage. You might think that the Bible says stand fast or remain strong, but that is not how the Bible deals with sexual sin. When we are faced with sexual temptation, what does the Bible instruct us to do? Run away. Run away. Look at verse 18. Here's the command, flee. Flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I want to bring uh, a couple other passages in here to show that this is not just some aberration here in 1 Corinthians 6. Look at 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22. What does it say about youthful passions? It says, flee Flee youthful passions. What example does Joseph give to us? We just preached through Genesis. When he's tempted, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. What does he do? He left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He ran away. Proverbs. What does Proverbs tell us? 5.8. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Don't even get close. Don't put yourself in a situation where you could remotely be tempted. Also note this, in 1 Corinthians 6, when he says flee, he uses the present tense, which is a way of saying this, flee habitually, continue to flee, flee again and again and again and again. Make your life be characterized by running away from this sin. May your life be characterized by never going close to this particular sin. God has not ordained that we fight sexual sin by standing our ground. We fight it by fleeing. There are sins, okay? There are sins that we fight by staying and fighting. This is just just not one of them. Everywhere in Scripture, it's run, flee, go away. Run from this fight and save your battle strength for the fights that the the Bible says to engage in those particular fights, but run from this one. The reason why this sin is so unique and the prescriptions are so strong in here is because Paul says this is against your body. When you sin in this way, Paul says you are sinning against your body. I think he's talking about this in a general sense. Your body, again, he has talked about the fact, will endure. There's a resurrection. Um, And so he's saying you're sinning against your body in in, in a very severe way. Your body's going to be around. The world criticizes us for being obsessed with sexual sins. Uh, One of my unbelieving friends was very critical against Christianity and against myself. And he said this, I hear you criticizing sexual sins, but why don't you ever say anything else about lying or anything else? Um, There's a few responses to that. Uh, First of all, uh, come listen to our preaching sometimes because we talk about all kinds of sins, (laughs) okay? We're preaching verse by verse, passage by passage, and when the Bible says this, we address this, when the Bible says this, this again and again and again and again. Secondly, the Bible does make a categorical sin between sexual sins and other sins, Notice how he does it in this text. He puts sexual sins here, and then he says, every other sin. You see he's making a categorical difference here? He's saying, here's this sin, and then here's every other sin. There's a difference here. Uh, Romans 1, it is sexual perversion that is uniquely attributed as the mark of a dying culture. In Romans chapter 1, they gave, God gave them up to a uh, debased mind to do this, and to do that, and that, and this, and that, and this, and this, and this. And that's specifically the marker in that particular passage. It's homosexuality. And Paul says that when your culture is being given over to that, it is a sign that your culture is dying. So there's something serious about this particular sin. Um, Next response to this criticism is that the world right now is obsessing over sexuality, it is their obsession. And we're responding to this, giving biblical passages. And then the fourth principle I would say in responding to this particular criticism is this. The more glorious something is, the worse its perversions. So let me help you understand what I'm saying here. If I had a photograph of a pencil here... And I took permanent marker and I scribbled all over this pencil and said, ah, there, take that. Uh, It's just a picture of a pencil. (laughs) It doesn't matter. (laughs) Throw it in the trash. If there was a photograph of your best friend, and you scribbled permanent marker over that, it wasn't my friend directly that you did it to, but that kind of hurts. What are you saying when you do that? Why? People... Are better than pencils okay (laughs) right a person is more glorious than a pencil and so perversions of that or um, blows against that are worse than blows against other things right and so when something is glorious we strike out against God himself that's serious But striking out against uh, a photograph of a pencil or whatever you want to put in there is really uh, who cares about that. Um, The same thing is true with uh, murder. Killing a person is a big deal, okay? Killing an animal is not a big deal, right? Because people are made in what? God's image. Um, In the same way, I think we can apply that to our present text, sexual perversion is a big deal because the real thing, the original thing, the good and right sexual union is so glorious, partly because this is a representation of the relationship between Christ and the church. Sexual union in the right way is designed by God to be uh, delightful, to join two people together in intimacy in a way that nothing else could do. And so sexual perversions, because the, the height of how glorious God has created this to be, and how good God has created this to be, and how delightful God has created this to be, the perversions of that are very serious. This is why Paul deals with it so seriously, Sexual perversions are serious because they trash something that God designed to be glorious and wonderful. Therefore, we treat our bodies sexually with a great deal of respect, knowing that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. This is the reasoning here in verses 19 through 20. Saying, Don't engage in this kind of sexual morality. Don't you know? Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? whom you have from God, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I would suggest that verses 19 and 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 strikes at the heart of modern sexual ethics. Why is that? Paul says that you should not commit fornication Instead, recognize that your body belongs to God and it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Modern sexual ethics in the 21st century America has one value or or one rule. Okay? And that rule is consent. As long as that is present... Anything is permissible. This is what modern sexual ethics are telling us. You you, you could engage in whatever activity you want with whoever you want to, as long as you have this one rule. Paul demolishes this value, and he says it's God's consent that matters, not yours. That's, That's what he's doing. Your consent is irrelevant if you're wanting to violate God's consent. Um, It doesn't matter if you have consent. If God says no, then the answer is no. If You say, I want to engage in this activity outside of the scriptural parameters. God has already not given you consent to do that. Um, The answer is not my body, my choice. It is God's body, God's choice exactly what he's saying here. You're not your own. It's your body is God's body. Therefore, it's God's choice how you, what you do with that body. Postmodernism, as a worldview, is demolished. Postmodernism claims that you are sovereign over your body and your identity. This is my body, my identity. I will define myself however I want to. I will do whatever I want to. Postmodernism values this, autonomous free will do we see this in our culture autonomous free will whatever i want to do no matter what i will do i will I, I will identify myself how i want to identify myself i will do whatever i want this is postmodernism at its heart paul says that your actions are subject to god and his authority because you belong to him you don't even belong to yourself Why? Because you were bought with a price. Here's how Peter says it. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This logic, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, as well as 1 Corinthians 6, particularly the last two verses, 19 and 20, this logic is the death blow to libertine thought. Why can't you say, all things are lawful for me? I can do whatever I want because God owns you, not yourself. This is what Paul is saying. So where do we go from here? I want to give to us two big themes from the passage in front of us. Theme number one is this, run away from sexual sin because you are joined to Christ. Because you're joined to Christ, because you have union with Christ, run away from all sorts of sexual sins. The second theme that we see in this passage is this you can't do whatever you want because God owns you. Uh, I don't know if there are any two principles more antithetical to the current spirit of the age than these two. The world indulges the opposite of these two principles. The world runs towards sexual sin. The world does whatever it wants. Uh, we, We read the Corinthians saying, all things are lawful for me. We can hear that echoed in our own culture. All things are lawful for me. And we, ashamedly so, can hear that echoed in the church in America today. Can we not? All things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. These two values that Paul, or these themes that Paul gives to us in 1 Corinthians 6. Demolish those particular ways of thinking. The world does whatever it wants, but ironically, as the text in front of us reveals, that's not freedom, that's enslavement. And so let's apply this passage today. I'm simply transferring one of these themes, um, actually, both of them in a way, but transferring them into our application. And so application number one is simply a repeat here run away from sexual sin because you're joined to Christ. Uh, Number two application is reject libertine or this free thinker at value and ask what is helpful. Okay, fine. Maybe you can do this. Maybe it is permissible to do this. But is that helping you to be more like Christ? Um, By the way, we as Christians are oftentimes going to come to different, different conclusions on what is helpful to us, right? Um, you might be sitting next to someone today that says, I really struggle with indulging myself in this way, and so I'm not going to have this. I'm not going to have uh, television. I'm not going to have this. I'm not going to have that in my home because that's not helping me. Uh, I just want to remind us that those of us who may come to other conclusions and say, well, I am going to have the TV, um, we are not to look down our noses at this particular individual. Our assumption is, oh, you think that makes you better with God. They might just simply be saying, "This, this doesn't help me. We should instead be coming along that person that you think is uh, a killjoy and encouraging them in Christ and maybe even learning from their example. there be times we need to do that. So we need to ask ourselves what is helpful. We need to do that not only individually, but we're doing that as a church where we're saying, I'm not going to be a jerk to other people because they might struggle in this particular area. Third uh, application is relinquish control of your body to the Lord. Um, God owns you, not you. And so live your life as God has called you to live your life, according to Scripture. All of this is only possible if we know Christ. You can't obey enough. You can't repent enough. You can't run away from sexual sin enough if you don't have Christ. And so if you are not trusting in Christ, may I encourage you to repent, believe on him today, be happy to talk with you more about that. Thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness and your kindness. Help us to characterize our lives by truth, by love, by gentleness, by all these kinds of things. Help us not to uh, just embrace this mindset of the Corinthians that whatever goes, goes, we could do whatever we want. Help us to live our lives asking what is helpful seeking not to be dominated by anything through slavery, um, but seeking to live our lives effective in ministry for the sake of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.